everyone. Welcome to episode 167 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. We have some Patreon thank yous. Thank you to Catherine and Doreen. Yes, thank you so much for becoming patrons. We so appreciate your support. It makes us happy and glowy and warm and fuzzy. And then it's just so helpful for podcast expenses. Paying the bills. And then Doreen must be one of the luckiest people I know because she just became a Patreon. And then a few days later, we did our random number generator to choose our Patreon book giveaway and Doreen won. Yeah, congrats. Copy of Sinister Graves by Marcy R. Rendon. That's the third book in the Cash Black Bear Mystery series. Reminder that Murder on the Red River is our current read along. If you haven't signed up for the Zoom discussion and you want to join us, that's on December 4th at 7 Eastern time. Email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. Yeah, we'd love to have you join us. And the conversation is always taking place on our Goodreads thread. Feel free to join us there. Chris, what are you currently reading? Well, I'm currently reading Sweet Thursday by John Steinbeck for Book Club, which meets tomorrow. The Vintage Book Club, which is sponsored by Book Club On The Go here in Connecticut. And then we are meeting at the Wood Memorial Library Museum again in South Windsor. Yeah, that's my current read also. I'm back with Mac in the Game from Cannery Row, which we'll talk about soon. Yeah. What do you think of it so far? I'm not very far in. I like where the book takes place. It's fun to be in California in an old canning neighborhood. So I'm enjoying it, but I'm not very far in. What about you? You know, I'm liking it. The first couple pages, I was like, "Mm, maybe it would have been nice just to go with one book because our book group chose to read these two because they're relatively short. And the last book we read by Steinbeck, Reminder We Meet Quarterly, it was East of Eden, which was 13,000 pages. (laughs) Not quite. I think it was 600 maybe. Yeah. So everybody got a little excited and said, oh, let's read both. Because unbeknownst to me, Sweet Thursday is the second book in what they call the Cannery Row series. I never knew that. I always just thought Cannery Row was a standalone. Right. Cannery Row came out in 45 and then Sweet Thursday, was it 54 maybe it came out? So this is post-World War II and what's going on with everyone in that neighborhood. Some people are gone. There are some new faces on the block. And Doc at this point is going through a bit of a crisis. He's feeling discontent. And I'm finding that fascinating. We had a conversation on the train about Cannery Row and everyone thinking Doc was the greatest guy on the face of the earth. And I was surprised that there was like no resentment towards him as being college educated, being more of a white collar guy. He's a biologist in the field collecting things, but it's a real working class neighborhood to the point where it's the depression and people are living in pipes and old factory equipment and things that no one had resentment towards Doc, I kind of thought was surprising. But it's actually mentioned in Sweet Thursday. And I thought, see, I knew it was there. Yeah, we had just talked about that. And then I started reading Sweet Thursday. And I didn't want to spoil it for you. I was like, Oh, this is exactly what Chris was just talking about. (laughs) (laughs) You're such a good critical reader. And I mean that in all the best ways. (laughs) Yeah, so Sweet Thursday. And then um, I'm also reading All That She Carried, The Journey of Ashley Sack. A Black Family Keepsake, and that's by Taya Miles. 
absolutely loving this book. It's amazing. More to come on that. Yeah, I really want to read that one. I'm interested to hear what you think about it. All right, so just read. This is going to be a large section because Emily was on vacation for a week, which means she read a bit more than usual. How many books did you read? I read four and a half on vacation. It was a rainy week, (laughs) so I got a lot read. But we also read some books together, you and I. So should we cover those first? Do you want to talk through those? One is Cannery Row, which we just mentioned. Yeah, Cannery Row, supposedly according to Goodreads, I'd read it, (laughs) which I don't remember. I I think I might have started it and didn't finish it, but it was marked as read and... Hmm. Yeah, I had never read it. Okay, what'd you think? I liked it, but I didn't love it. And I definitely am plot driven reader. So I found it a little slow. But I definitely love the writing. Mm -hmm. You know, I love the place. I love the writing. I love the characters. And it surprised me that it reads almost like there's a story, but then there's also vignettes that kind of come in on different chapters. So that surprised me because sometimes it seemed like that was random. (laughs) Yes, like the one chapter two towards the end about the gopher. Yeah. I was like, wow, completely random. Yeah. But Doc, who you've mentioned already, is one of them is probably what I would consider one of the main characters. And he collects sea creatures because this takes place in Monterey, Salinas in California. And so I really enjoyed that part of the book being out in the tide poles and searching for creatures because he conducts science experiments. Right, yeah. He provides specimens for schools and museums and things like that. So Mm -hmm. he's actually fulfilling orders a lot of the time. Yeah, There's a scene with frogs. Mac and the guys are off on a frog-collecting mission, and they are on this other man's land, and he's like, get off. But Mac is the kind of guy who could charm anyone. And they get to the point where the man is saying, oh, you're here for frogs? You know, I have a pond full of frogs. You're welcome to take them all. They keep me awake at night. And so I was talking with a friend about this who was a biologist, and he told me a story that back in the day here in New Haven, right along the shore where there's sewage treatment, there used to be a huge area where a certain type of frog lived and reproduced and enjoyed life. And people hated them so much, they would pour barrels of oil into this water area to make the frogs go away. Hmm. Pouring barrels of oil into the Long Island Sound to keep frogs away. Wow. I did think about just the number of specimens sometimes that Doc would collect, and you think that's one guy doing this, and I'm sure... A lot of what he was doing back then would not be legal now. Right. Am I not remembering this right? I thought the collection of frogs, too, was for eating, wasn't it? Because that's why they were for sale over at the market. Oh, no. I think what happened with that was that they were collecting it because Doc had a big order. I'm assuming like for high school dissection classes or something. And the grocer made a deal with Mac and the guys when they were trying to throw Doc this party. Spoilers. Sorry, people. Um, <laughs> they were using it as payment to Lee Chong right. for groceries and stuff. And Lee Chong then was going to sell them to Doc. Oh, I missed that part. Yeah. Okay, so, that makes sense. So yeah. he was actually going to make a profit right? because they were selling a frog for five cents. Yeah. And he was charging them more for the groceries 
That was a wild part of the book. And I'm looking forward to our conversation tomorrow because this is the former Willa Cather book club. And after we read all of her novels, the group voted on who to read next. And John Steinbeck was the lucky winner. And I remember one of the comments during our discussion of My Antonia was about how it's more like just a bunch of little vignettes and there wasn't really a through line that a lot of people saw. Like, what's happening? Okay, and now what? what's next? How is that related to what just happened? So yeah, the Canary Row is a little episodic like that. Yeah. I feel like there might be a little bit more of a through line. I'm not sure. Hmm. Tomorrow's book club should be interesting. I did want to read one thing from Canary Row, just a paragraph. Because at first I thought it was kind of funny, but then, you know, women don't get a good break with Steinbeck for the most part, unless they're prostitutes. Yeah. Right? There's prostitute again in this book. Yeah. yeah. Wives are usually a bad thing, at least in Canary Row. So let me just read this. Someone should write an erudite essay on the moral, physical, and aesthetic effect of the Model T Ford on the American nation. Two generations of Americans know more about the Ford coil than the clitoris, about the planetary system of gears than the solar system of stars. With the Model T, part of the concept of private property disappeared. Pliers ceased to be privately owned, and a tire pump belonged to the last man who picked it up. Most of the babies of the period were conceived in Model T Fords, and not a few were born in them. The theory of the Anglo-Saxon home became so warped that it never quite recovered. Mm. Okay, so funny, the thing about the clitoris. Mm -hmm. But then you think, okay, in relation to the rest of the things he has to say about women and home and wives, I think it's fascinating that this paragraph is about, you know, it starts with a center of pleasure for women. And so that center of pleasure is becoming less and less known according to this, like two generations know less about that and more about this coil to keep their Model T running. But then it's all about sex and conceiving babies in these cars mm. and even being born in the cars. It's almost like women go from having pleasure to just being reproductive and there for men's pleasure. That's what I was kind of thinking about when I went back and reread that because, of course, I have a sticky note next to it. I wish you guys could see all the sticky notes she has in this book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And mm. I mean, what do you think of that? Because home is not considered a good thing in this book. Home is a place of constriction and cleanliness and order and rules. There are also very unusual concepts of home. I mean, there are people living in an old abandoned boiler a lot of people don't have home in this book in the way that we would conceptualize of a home, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, and that couple in the boiler, I love them. Mm -hmm. And just how the wife one day is crying for curtains and there are no windows in the place. The husband doesn't necessarily understand, but then later on in the book, he's asking somebody, hey, how would you glue cloth to steel? Because he's obviously wanting to get his wife curtains so that they can at least glue to the side of that, right, which I thought was to lovely. Make her happy and mm -hmm. make her feel like she's trying to make this boiler into a home. Mm -hmm. You know, right. yeah. I think that I'd have to reread that paragraph in the context because I also think it was about them trying to repair the car, wasn't it? I mean, they were on a mission to try to get this car up and running. Or right. Was that it? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the coil is broken, and right. 
yeah, they're trying to repair it. So I can't speak to that. I mean, it's a very good academic question. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't feel prepared to answer it. I don't think Uh, it's just such a packed paragraph. It's one I've thought about a couple times since finishing the book. But yeah, Cannery Row, I'm glad to have it under my belt. Yeah, for sure. Another book that we read that's completely different is The Fall Girl by Marsha Clark. This was very plot driven. We did a listen along with our buddy, John Valeri, our mystery man, and he and Marsha Clark joined us and that will be on an upcoming episode. So we're not going to talk too much about the book right now. Yeah, but the audio version was really fun because there were two narrators. So Marsha read one character and then... Kathy Lapard, who's Marsha's writing partner, does a lot of writing for TV, read the other part. So that was fun to have the two voices. It really worked for me. Yeah, me too. And it was fast paced and a police procedural in parts of it and a little bit of a whodunit mystery. I really enjoyed it. You know, Marsha definitely knows her way around a courtroom. That's for sure. (laughs) Again, that's called The Fall Girl, and it is out now, both the audio and the hardcover. Yep. Get yourself a copy if you want to be ready for the episode. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. And so the other book that we read in common is Small Game, a novel by Blair Braverman. Love this one so much. Yes, this is about a reality show called Civilization, where five people are dropped on an island, and things don't go as planned. Yes, things go haywire. Yes, in ways you don't expect. I really enjoyed this so much. And we have a conversation coming up with Blair. So we hope you catch that. And get yourself a copy of this one too. This one is out November. I think it's the 1st of November. Yes. Let your libraries know about it. Blair has written two nonfiction books. This is her debut novel. And I feel like where it really shines is in all of the survivalist aspects. You know, these people are on an island. They have to boil their own water, catch their own food, start fire. I really enjoyed that aspect of her writing. Yes, same here. All they have are these loincloths and a a top, and then they're allowed to choose one thing when they first get there. Somebody chooses a pot, the other people choose like knives or an axe, but that's all they have. So they have to make their own shelter. And as Emily said, collect their own food. So it's pretty intense. And it is so believable, because you know about Blair's real life experience and what she's done. Yeah. So that conversation with Blair is coming up soon as well. Yeah. Let's see. Those are the three books we have in common. I also read Small Things Like These by Claire Keegan. This is a book that our buddy Russell talked about. This was nominated for a Booker Prize. It's teeny tiny. Claire Keegan lives in Ireland. And this is a really sweet little book about a man and his family in a small Irish town in 1985. It's right around Christmas time. Bill Furlong is a coal merchant. He delivers coal all around town, including behind this big door where there is a convent of sorts. Nuns come to the door to take the coal delivery. But one day he's going to deliver the coal and there's a young girl shivering and alone in the space where he typically delivers the coal. And he comes to find out that there are things happening there that aren't to be expected. 
So this is about, you know, I don't know if folks have read or seen movies about the places where young women who were pregnant were sent away from their families. This has a little thread of that in it. Again, it's teeny tiny. Let me look. It's just 115 pages. I really recommend it. Her writing is sublime. I would like to read some other things by her. It's blurbed on the front by Hilary Mantel. Mm. May she rest in peace. Yes. It says powerful and affecting and very timely, which of course has to do with women's rights and how they're being chipped away, particularly in the United States right now. Again, small things like these. Claire Keegan, thank you to Russell for recommending that I read this. And also listener Tony on Goodreads recommended that I read it as well. Very cool. Okay, so the other book, well, I want to hear about all the books in your mighty stack that are sitting here, but there's one with this beautiful cover. I can't wait to hear about this one. Oh, this is one that we bought, we, I bought, but when we were together, when we did our big Toadstool bookstore day up in New Hampshire, this is where we went to three different bookstores. And the third time I saw this at one of their bookstores, I was like, okay, this book is actually talking to me. Partly because the cover is just beautiful. It's called The Mad Women's Ball, and it's by Victoria Moss. It's translated from the French by Frank Wynne. This takes place in 1885. We're at the Salpetriere Asylum. Emily doesn't speak French. Pardon me, everybody. My pronunciations are terrible. It's loosely based on the true story of women who were put in asylums because they were deemed to be mad or hysterical. So in the back, there's actually a very short page of notes with eight notes when she mentions real life people. And one of them was Dr. Jean-Martin Charcot, who was a French neurologist who came to the asylum and was known for his work of hypnotizing these women to help them with their hysteria. Mm. And so there are some scenes in the book with some of the women where there's an auditorium full of male doctors watching him handle one of the women, touching her ovaries or whatever to try to handle her insanity or hysteria. What's interesting about the book, it's mostly from the perspective of one of the nurses, Genevieve, who's pretty hardcore. So she walks the women up to be taken care of by Charcot in these auditoriums. But then another woman comes, Eugenie, who is not at all insane, but has recently confessed to her grandmother that she can communicate with the dead. And her grandmother tells her father and her father and brother commit her to the asylum. It's pretty intense. There's also a woman who's there. And it's actually a refuge for her because she was being sexually abused by her stepfather. So it's an aspect you don't necessarily think of is that there are women who might see it as a refuge, and then also women who just shouldn't be there because they're certainly not ill. I loved this book so much. It's pretty short. It's just 200 pages. So well written, and kind of uplifting, which you wouldn't think. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to spoil it because you certainly could. But I thought I would just read a little passage just so you could get a sense of what her writing is like. With the arrival of the new century came a glimmer of hope. Doctors of some standing took over the running of this hospital for those still dismissed as mad women. There were advances in medical knowledge. The Salpetriere became a place for treatment and research into neurological conditions. 
New categories emerged for the patients in the various wings of the hospital. Hysterics, epileptics, melancholiacs, and dotards. The shackles and the rags disappeared, only to be replaced by experiments that were conducted on the bodies of the infirm. Ovarian compressors were used to calm hysterical fits. A hot iron inserted into the vagina reduced clinical symptoms. Psychotropic drugs, amyl nitrate, ether, chloroform, calmed the nerves of the women. The application of various metals, zinc and magnets, on palsied limbs had genuine beneficial effects. With the arrival of Professor Charcot in the mid-19th century, hypnosis became the new medical trend. The Friday public lectures stole the limelight from the popular theaters. The mad women of the Salpetrier were Paris's new stars. People talked of Augustine and of Blanche Whitman with contemptuous or carnal fascination. Because mad women could now evoke desire. Their allure was paradoxical. They aroused both fear and fantasy horror, and sensuality. A fit of hysteria suffered by a hypnotized patient before a rapt audience looked less like a neurological dysfunction than a frantic, erotic dance. Madwomen did not provoke terror, but fascination. And it was this same fascination that several years ago had given risen to the Lenten Ball, the Mad Women's Ball, an annual event in the capital, Only those who could boast an invitation were permitted to pass through the gates of a place otherwise reserved for the mentally ill. For one night only, a little of Paris finally came to these women who had so many hopes pinned on this ball. Of a look, a smile, a caress, a compliment, a pledge, deliverance. And while they dreamed, the stranger's eyes would feast on these curious creatures, these dysfunctional women, these crippled bodies, and for weeks they would talk of the mad woman they had seen up close. That's messed up. So the title of the book, The Mad Woman's Ball, again by Victoria Moss, what it's all leading up to is this ball that these women prepare for. You know, they prepare their costumes they're going to wear, and part of the plot really culminates on the night of the ball. I loved it. Highly recommend it. Wow, see, now that cover is not what I would expect the book to be about. Yeah. It's so fascinating. Yeah, well, definitely one of those cases where the cover called to me and I picked up this book and bought it, and I'm not sorry that I did. Yeah, it sounds fascinating and horrifying. Is the cover, do you understand it more now after you've read it? Probably not. It's so funny you should ask me because I was reading it one night and Jim was like, can't you see the face in the cover? And I was like... You are totally creeping me out because I do not see a face in the cover. Do you see a face? I do not. Yeah. He was like, in the chandelier, there's a face. I'm like, it's a chandelier. No, I think the cover to me, it just speaks to this fancy ball that takes place because it's got chandeliers and these fancy chairs and gowns are coming out of each of the items. Yeah. It looks kind of like a kaleidoscope. Yeah. Yeah. But no. I definitely didn't see a face in the cover. (laughs) Very cool. I'm glad you read that one. (laughs) I read a picture book, Nancy Pearl. It's about Nancy Pearl. She didn't write it. Oh. But the title is Library Girl, How Nancy Pearl Became America's Most Celebrated Librarian. It's by Karen Henry Clark and illustrated by Cheryl Murray. It came out on September 27th from Little Bigfoot. And it's the story of little Nancy Pearl when she was a girl. She read a lot, and the other kids made fun of her and called her library girl. 
which wasn't a compliment. And she found, though, that the public library was open on Saturdays, and it changed her life. So little Nancy Pearl spent a lot of time there, and the librarians got to know her and nurtured her, and she decided she was going to become a librarian because of all the good things they did for her. It's really a heartwarming story. It's a beautiful picture book. It's very colorful. So if you know a little person or any kind of person who needs some motivation to read and the good that reading and books can do, it would make, I think, a great holiday gift or a gift any time of the year. Oh, how fun. I love Nancy Pearl. (laughs) It reminds me of kids, too. And I knew some people who I was raising kids at the same time where all their kids wanted to do was read. And so it would become their form of punishment if their kid was doing something, you know, like you have to find your kids collateral. And so they would punish them by saying, you have to go outside, you can't read. <laughs> Just, oh, that's a tough one. Yeah. Yeah, I feel for Nancy. And I'm I'm glad she became a librarian. She's beloved. So mm-hmm, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah and, and thanks to Neck Alley, because I had read that one as an arc. Oh, lovely. Yeah. I also read a book called Dark Rivers to Cross by Lynn Reeves. This book is out on November 8th. Lynn Reeves, the author, is a pretty renowned therapist. She's on television. She's one of those people, if they need an expert, they call her in. This is a novel about a woman who is in a very abusive relationship. She doesn't realize it until a little too late, which is often the case. And she has to escape her relationship. So she ends up in Maine at a river cottage running a business. People come and stay at this village that she's created and have adventures on the river. And she raises these two boys, but to protect their privacy, they think they've been adopted because she doesn't want them to know anything about their past and who they're related to. And as kids are want to do, especially as they become young adults, one of the boys gets very interested in his past and starts to stir things up. And I'm not going to say anything else, because that would be a spoiler. I will just say, warning for domestic violence, some drug abuse, if those are triggers for you, this is not the book for you. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a page turner. And the story was really interesting and a way to look at domestic violence in a way that I hadn't considered before. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I know I did some Googling about the book when you were reading it. And it sounds fascinating. Yeah, she definitely is probably an expert on these sorts of things. And it's about trauma too, inherited trauma, how you handle that as someone who is traumatized from abuse, but then also these boys that were her natural genetics, like we talked about with Jamie Ford's book, how does that impact them when there's been some violence when they were babies in their lives? So she's taking on that issue as well in this book. Again, Dark Rivers to Cross by Lynn Reeves out on November 8th. Yeah, you know, the issue of domestic abuse, I had been a volunteer crisis counselor when I lived in Nebraska. I was a phone crisis counselor. And the women who would call in, it was almost always women. There's escalation with domestic abuse. Quite often it starts with maybe name calling, maybe moodiness, and then it can go into controlling your behavior or telling you not to wear certain things or to wear your hair a certain way. And then it can escalate to actually destroying pieces of clothing they don't want you to wear. 
And then often the next step is hitting. So I think just people need to be so aware of those early signs. Yeah. Because it is, like you said, she wasn't aware of it until Mm. it was too late. Yeah. And this is a male-female relationship. And he was a revered doctor in his hospital and of high standing. And so it's also one of those where people maybe won't believe you when you tell them what's going on behind closed doors. Right. Yeah. And there's a long tradition, too, of women who are more financially comfortable being abused and having physical signs of abuse, but they can afford not to go to work. Mm, Whereas women who are working class or need to work to pay the bills, they can't hide it as well. So I think for a long time, people used to think domestic abuse was a lower class problem. Mm. I say that in quotation marks. Because wealthier women, I don't want to say had that luxury, but they they had the time for their wounds to heal before the public saw. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. But all women, and I think that's one of the things she's doing in this book, want to protect their children. Mm -hmm. And this woman goes to great lengths in this story to protect her children from violence. Yeah, just in case you guys have forgotten what we're talking about now, it's called Dark Rivers to Cross by Lynn Reeves. Well, I finished a book that I had started a long, long time ago, Miss Grief and Other Stories by Constance Fenimore Wilson, This is a collection that was edited by Anne Boyd Rue, and I love these first stories. Like I said, this is going to be one of my favorite short story collections of all time, and I still stand by that statement, even though the last two stories, I had two left because I I put it down and I thought I'm going to keep it on my reading chair, but I'm going to kind of save these. And I definitely like the earlier stories more. There's one called St. Clair Flats, which was written sometime in like the 1870s. It's set in the Great Lakes along the St. Clair River, which is near Detroit. So think about that, that time period. It's a a man and a woman who are doing a canoe tour through all the marsh area there and what they discover. You don't really think about that because the marsh doesn't exist like it used to. You know, that's all been developed. Just a beautiful story. She also had a story from the Reconstruction era where there's a man, he's a Union soldier who's tending a grave in charge of the cemetery. I think I talked about that one on a past episode, but just fantastic stories, so well written. She, Constance Fenimore Wilson, was considered the Jane Austen of America for quite a while. She was so popular and such a good writer, but then she died young. And her reputation was eclipsed, knocked down. You know how that can happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful stories. I highly recommend this. If you're a short story reader, I think you would love some of these. And and even the ones that I wasn't all that into, other people might like even more. Again, Miss Grief and Other Stories by Constance Fenimore Wilson. I read a book that I bought in Colorado in 2021 when I went to the new tattered cover that had just opened, and this was another book that our buddy Russell had talked about. But then also Jenny from Reading MV, who we miss so dearly. Yes. This was one of her favorite books of 2021. And so with both of those, I just thought I had started it on my vacation, but it was one of those where my vacation was too busy and I just couldn't get into it. So I took it a year later on another (laughs) vacation and said, I am going to read this book. It's very short. It's almost, I guess it's longer than a novella, but it's 150 pages. And it's about two young black artists in London 
they're beautiful people. One's a photographer, one's a dancer, and they meet each other. The woman is involved with another man at the time that they meet, and she breaks off that relationship. They start to date, and it's really an explanation of the artist's life and the complications of love and what it's like to be a black man in London. There's a lot of things that are talked about in this book in a very quick, short way. And the writing style is really interesting. He often repeats things in an interesting way. And he's a poet. So that kind of makes sense when you know that when you're reading it. So in one of the chapters, for example, he starts by saying, it's summer now. And then he writes a couple paragraphs. And then again, he says, it's summer now, and keeps writing more. And then the next paragraph starts, it's summer now. So they're repeated. It's such an interesting way of writing. And also using music. And he talks about other authors and their books. So it's very much about art. I loved it stylistically. I've never read anything like it. Hmm. I can see why Jenny loved it. Because yeah. she was also a musician. Hmm. She loved music. And there's a lot of music in this book. Oh, that's a cover I've seen a lot. A lot of people talking about that one. Yeah. yeah. Again, it's called Open Water by Caleb Azuma Nelson. Oh, speaking of Jenny, the next book I'm going to talk about, I finished Lovecraft Country by Matt Ruff. There was a Netflix adaptation done on this novel. And of course, Jenny read the first 100 pages. I feel like every book I pick up on Goodreads, there's Jenny talking about it. I loved it, Lovecraft Country. It is such a mashup of different genres it's fantasy, it's sci-fi, it's horror, it's social commentary, it's so many things, and I loved it so much. I came upon the series, actually, when I was researching a topic that I'm writing a paper on, and they said there were race riots reflected in episode three. So it's like, oh, I need to watch that, because the paper is all about collective memory and having something that happened in 1951 represented in a TV series in 2022, that is collective memory happening right there, right? And so I watched it and was really fascinated by it. And so read the novel in like two or three settings. It is about 372 pages. So it's not small, but it went down really fast. I do have to say that I like the beginning more. I felt like at the end, it did get a little like looser in some ways. So basically, the gist is, Atticus is a man, he's a Korean War veteran, African-American guy, he's 22. And he is kind of estranged from his dad. They have a really strained relationship, put it that way. His dad writes a letter saying that he wants him to come to this house. So he's like, oh, that's weird, you know, but he's going to go because it's his dad. There's so much racism depicted, Jim Crow era racism, because it's set in the 1950s. So you see a lot of that happening, the treatment of African-Americans. Atticus is a young boy and now is a man. He loves the pulp fiction, sci-fi, fantasy kind of books. So I just wanted to read a little bit. One of the reasons his dad and Atticus have issues is his dad thinks these books are ridiculous and racist. Part of it is talking about Earl and Atticus the dad, how he doesn't like these stories because of the way Negroes are depicted. He says the book's depictions of Negroes and for the fact that as a boy, he hadn't noticed it. 
these depictions. Despite his father's repeated attempts to point it out to him, yeah, my pop had some problems with my reading choices too, Atticus says. And then we go further into the, a couple pages, and George is Atticus's uncle. And they're talking about kind of the problems with the stories that they see, the racism. And Atticus says to his uncle George, but you love those stories. You love them as much as I do. And George says, I do love them. But stories are like people, Atticus. Loving them doesn't make them perfect. You try to cherish their virtues and overlook their flaws. The flaws are still there, though. And I thought that was so good because I know you and I, Emily, we talk about reading books that are problematic and how can you love a book that is sexist, racist, homophobic. And I thought that equating them with people who you love who are flawed doesn't mean you still can't appreciate certain things. Right. I just really enjoyed reading that. And Atticus and his relationship with his Uncle George is really special. Mm. So anyway, look up the plot. If you are not into sci-fi, fantasy, or horror, but you're into social justice issues, this might be a book you want to try because there's some vengeance that happens. <laughs> not a lot. And I appreciate the end. Matt Ruff is a white man who wrote this book. Things are not tied up in a neat bow at the end. There's still racism. There's still struggle. Uncle George, he has a Negro travel guide based on the Green Book, that idea. So all over the country, they're going all over the country and encountering racism and more. But from... Yeah, I mean, the conceit of it sounds so interesting. Yeah, and apparently Matt Ruff, I've never read anything by him, but he's kind of known for never writing the same type of book twice. He writes in a lot of different genres. One of the reasons he wrote this book or started thinking about racism in different ways is when he was in college or grad school in New York he would go for long walks in the country. And one of his friends was African-American, and Matt said to him one day, oh, you should come with me for a walk, or you should go for a walk in the country. And he's like, dude, I'm black. Mm. And he's like, well, it's New York. And he's like, yeah, it's mm. New York. And so that made him really start thinking as a younger man about the differences in being white and black and how that constricts your movement and the options that you have. I really enjoyed this. I only watched that third episode of the TV series, and I'm saving the rest of it to watch as a post-semester treat. Ah. Yeah. Oh, it's actually on HBO. I'm sorry. Okay. I think I misspoke earlier and said Netflix, but it's on HBO. Who knows? I mean, shows hop around too, right? Yeah. So it's one season only. I guess from what I've read of that third episode and other reviews I've read, it's a pretty faithful adaptation. And they wanted to go on and have it be a longer series using those same characters, but it didn't get picked up because I think they thought we adapted the book and we're just going to leave it at that. I think that's okay, personally. I think sometimes they try to keep things going that one and done is fine. Yeah, Right. But I mean, it's really good. And yeah. it's beautifully shot 1950s clothing. And so there is that aesthetic amid the horror as well. I read two more. I read The Salt Path by Raynor Wynn. This was one that I was so excited to find at our Guilford Library sale. It's a memoir about Raynor and her husband who become homeless due to financial woes in their 50s. And at the same time, her husband, Wolf, is diagnosed with a neurological disease that's terminal. Mm -hmm. 
So they end up homeless with backpacks on their back, walking the 630 mile southwest coast path in England. I listened to it both on audio, Rainer narrates and read it. And it's a bit of a nail biter. I mean, in the sense that you're like, oh, these poor people, they're just whatever's happening with the elements is what they're facing. And they get a little bit of money every month, but their money runs out. And so they're trying to feed themselves as well and handle being alive as they do this walk. And they're not young people. They're not old, but they're not young. It ends up that her husband feels a lot better because he's moving his body every day. So that's one of the things that she talks about in the book. I really enjoyed it. If you're a memoir person, if you like books like Wild by Cheryl Strayed, you will definitely enjoy this book. Again, it's called The Salt Path by Raynor Wynne. And then the last book that I read was called The Lunar Housewife by Carolyn Woods. This is my book club book for my quarterly book club. This book takes place over 1953 through 55. It is a literary thriller, a Cold War spy novel with a sci-fi romance novel within the novel. (laughs) That's like Kitchy's 1950s sci-fi. It's also historical fiction loosely based on the true story of the CIA intervention in the Cold War with American Arts and Letters. So there's a literary magazine in it called Downtown Magazine that is loosely based on the Paris Review and Playboy magazines Mm. at that time. There are appearances by James Baldwin. Ernest Hemingway plays a huge role in this book. It is so good and so unusual. I've never read anything like this book. The New York Times review said it was sly and delightful, equivalent of a flinty modern dame holding her own in a room full of condescending men. And that's the main character who works for this magazine. She writes for the magazine, but she has to write under a pen name. And Ernest Hemingway ends up saving the day for her. So it's very hard to describe, but it's a really good book. (laughs) So The Lunar Housewife is the name of the sci-fi novel that's taking place within the novel. Very cool. So is it a mashup of these different genres? Or is it really like one of those Russian dolls where like they're within, within, within? Ooh, or do they kind of, is it like an octopus tentacling everywhere? I would say it's a mashup. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the sci-fi romance novel actually is the lunar housewife that the character is writing. So there are alternating chapters that are chapters of this sci-fi novel, the lunar housewife. But then the literary thriller Cold War spy novel, that is definitely what it is. Very cool. It, yeah. that, that's a really neat cover too. Yeah. It 1950s is. woman with her pearls on. Yeah. Looking kind of glamorous. Holding a wine glass. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> that was some reading. Yeah. So you had a little rain on vacation. We had some serious rain on vacation. Like hurricane-ish <laughs> rain. <laughs> As a matter of fact, we went to Martha's Vineyard. We had to take a ferry over and the ferry ride was quite eventful. I was kind of glad that we got parked on the ferry so that we actually had to stay in our car and we were going backwards, facing forward, going backwards. So I couldn't really see what was happening. 
35 mile an hour winds at one point a huge splash of salt water comes over our car i mean it was it was kind of intense and the ocean was angry hurricane angry so i embraced it i wore my pajamas a lot and read a lot nice yeah it's good it's nice to have days like that on a vacation sometimes yeah yeah so Biblio Adventures, what happened on vacation is I got to go to Bunches of Grapes Bookstore in the rain. It's under new management. It's a really sweet bookstore in Vineyard Haven. It was my first stop on vacation and set the stage for lots of reading of books for the rest of the vacation. And then we also decided to tour all of the libraries on the vineyard because it was raining hard, as I've mentioned. We did not get to all of them because really? two of them were closed on Monday and Tuesday. And by Wednesday, the weather did perk up a little bit. And they were on a part of the island that we just couldn't get to again once Wednesday came. But we did get to the West Tisbury, Oak Bluffs, Vineyard Haven, and Edgerton Libraries. <laughs> so awesome. we had four <laughs> libraries, all very different. And they have super cool things like a lending library where they lend fishing poles and clamming gear, which, you know, you don't see everywhere. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So we made the best of it. It was fun. That was cool. And we did post some social media of those photos on social media. So check it out if you're curious. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? Well, I did attend an online event that was at the Beinecke Library here in New Haven and It was called The World in Maps, 1400 to 1600, with Ray Clemens, who's a friend. He's one of the curators there. This is going over their new exhibit. We can post a link to this. Fascinating stuff, you know, talking about maps and the purpose of them and, you know, what they depicted and what some of them were used for, because some maps were not really used for navigating. They were used more for merchants to look and see where goods were coming from and going to and things like that. But one of the great points that he made, which I I hadn't heard this before, was that the medievals did not believe that the world was flat. They didn't believe that. In fact, it was heretical to believe that because of certain things in the Bible. The whole myth that medieval people thought the world was flat was actually a 19th century myth that was created to make them look more backward in order to make the 19th century look more advanced. Hmm. Isn't that messed up? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I thought that was really fascinating. And I look forward to getting there to actually explore the exhibit. So I was going to ask you, not to put you on the spot, but it sounds like you know the answer. They are open now to the public again? Yes. Oh, good. Yes. Okay. The mezzanine where they have exhibits, that's open to the public again. Right on. Yeah. Good. And I think research is open to the public again as well. You have to make an appointment, obviously, but yeah. I mean, they have tours on Saturdays usually. These are free tours. And if you're ever in the area and you haven't been to the Beinecke, it's definitely worth the stop to see it because it's something else. Yeah, especially on a sunny day. The marble walls are so cool on a sunny day. Yeah. Well, we also had a joint couch biblio adventure here at Book Cougars headquarters. Yes. It was an event that was sponsored through Simmons University, the school I go to. It was their fall read-along book. They always choose one book that the community reads together and then have discussions about them. And it was Melinda Lowe's book, Last Night at the Telegraph Club. 
And she was in conversation with a history professor. Laura Pareto. Yeah. It was a great conversation. Melinda started by doing a PowerPoint where she put up a map and she talked about her research for last night at the Telegraph Club and where the character lived and how she kind of moved around the city. Yeah. And and that book is set in the 50s as well, about a young woman who begins to realize she's attracted to women. And she's Chinese American. She and her family live like on the edge of Chinatown. So that kind of is like that they're going to be moving out soon and maybe moving up for lack of a better way of saying that, right? Isn't that one of the points she made? Yeah. But yeah, so that was really cool to see those maps and then to see some photographs related to the research Melinda did for the context of the book. Reminder to people, this was one of Chris's top reads of 21. Yeah. Great book. I mean, she won a National Book Award, right? Yeah, for, yeah. and it's a YA book. Right, YA, yeah. yeah. Fantastic novel. I really enjoyed it. It was set in the 50s, which is before my time. But Melinda made the point that some of those bars were still bars that are existing now. They were lesbian bars then. They're lesbian bars now. They have the same floor layout and things like that. But some of the scenes, yeah, it made me feel like, oh, that's kind of like the bar experience I had in the 80s and 90s. Right. So really cool, really enjoyable book. And she has a new book out, A Scatter of Light. Yes, and I have it, and I can't wait to read it, but that's one I have to wait for post-semester stuff because I have kind of a heavy reading load right now. And she dropped a hint that there are a couple characters from Last Night at the Telegraph Club that show up in this one as well. Yeah, you find out, I guess what happens. They're not like main characters, but they're they're kind of in there. Right. And she told us that that book, A Scattering of Light, was written first. Right. Actually was one of the yeah. cool things that, well, not so cool because she couldn't get it published. Right. Back in 2013, I think it was, she was saying, because it's YA and there are sex scenes. And she said things have changed so much that now it's getting published. And she's like, those sex scenes are pretty much exactly the same. Right. And it's getting published now because I think people have realized, oh, yeah, young people do have sex. Right. They need to learn about things. Yeah. 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 It was such a fun biblio adventure. We ordered a pizza. Emily had some salad. We got on the couch and just munched down and watched it. And we decided we want to spend the winter doing this. (laughs) In about a month, it's going to be dark at four o'clock here. So yeah, Yeah. (laughs) we will keep you informed. Maybe we can even do some watch alongs with people. That'd be really fun. That's such a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to do some work on that. If anyone has events that they think would be fun, don't hesitate to let us know. That would be a lot of fun. And then we had a huge Biblio adventure this week, a joint jaunt, an Aunt Ellen jaunt. We got on the train for the first time since April and went down, met Aunt Ellen at Grand Central, and then took the subway to Brooklyn and spent the day in Brooklyn. Oh my gosh, it was so much fun. I'd never really walked around Brooklyn before. I'd been there in a vehicle kind of situation. So it was really great to get on the ground and walk around and See some of the fantastic architecture there. It's a very old part of the city. Yeah. And the Center for Fiction used to be located really close to Grand Central. And we had been there both to browse and for events. But they moved, I think, pre-pandemic Yes, to a new location in Brooklyn. We've been wanting to get there. And then the pandemic kind of got in the way. If you're in New York, look them up. They have events all the time. As a matter of fact, Barbara Kingsolver was there the day after we were. 
So we went to see their new facility. It's really modern and beautiful with literally walls of books. Really high walls of books. Yeah. yeah. Really cool. So the first floor is all books. Wonderful new book tables. I saw some things I'd never seen before, either online or at other bookstores. And then they have a cafe as well. And then upstairs, which wasn't open yet when we were there, it opened later in the afternoon. They have a library and a reading lounge and writing spaces. And then that's where they host events. Right. That gives us a reason to go back. Yeah. So I picked up two books too at uh, Center for Fiction. One is Queer Little Nightmares, an anthology of monstrous fiction and poetry. It's edited by David Lye and Daniel Zamparelli, which sounds really good. I kind of was flicking through it. So it's, you know, LGBTQ queer stories. And then the other one was Laser Rider by Tamara Shopson. You said you've heard of her before. I have, and there's a reason I wanted to read this book, and I can't remember what it is, because I actually had it in my hand at one point. Did you? Yeah, I heard an interview with her, or somebody talked about this book. I can't remember. Hmm. Yeah, somebody, the, the blurb on the back says, it's beautifully written and nerdily precise. And what drew me to it is that my dad, he originally was in the railroad business, and then when that kind of collapsed, he became a designer of printers. And so I was like, oh, laser writer. What is, you know, so it's about the 1990s Apple culture. So I thought that would be fun. You mentioned Barbara Kingsolver, her new book. It was inspired by Charles Dickens' Bleak House because she found out it was a bed and breakfast. She's like, well, of course we have to go stay there. So she was there and she said they got there and her husband went to bed and she went into, I don't know what room and was writing at his desk, at Dickens' desk. Mm. And he started talking to her. So they had this conversation about how does she write this? And he basically says, you know, like David Copperfield, exactly, let the kid talk. Mm. So this new book is called Damon Copperhead. I think the kid's name is Damon, but he gets called Demon on the the playground or something like that. So it sounds like a bleak story. I don't have a good track record with her novels, But I thought that might be one I consider for the summertime, probably. Yeah, I love her writing. But this one, I was the opposite. I was like, oh, this one might be way too smart for me. We'll see. (laughs) So then we were done with Center for Fiction. We walked to Books Are Magic, owned by the author Emma Straub. I had been there before, but Ellen and Chris had never been. Didn't disappoint. Not at all. So much fun to be there. Great staff recommendations. Yeah, wonderful translated fiction section, which is always fun to find. Mm -hmm. And it's National Filipino Heritage Month. They had a display for that. They had horror all ready for the spooky season. Yeah, they have a new horror section. Yeah. Where I was happy to see Shudder by Ramona Emerson faced out there. You know, I did buy a couple books there. I bought The Between by Tanarive Dew. I haven't read anything by her yet, so I'm looking forward to that. And then Yellow Jasmine by Caitlin Starling. There's this thin little novella type thing that has a really wonderfully creepy cover. I picked it up, and what drew me in was that it starts with a shipwreck. Ooh, we know how Chris feels about those. Gotta, yeah, gotta do that. So, yeah, great selection. It's really nice to be in a bookstore where you see books that are completely unfamiliar to you. You know, they're not the books that are being talked about everywhere or on the bestseller list 
Maybe not at least yet. Right. And Emma Straub, for any of you who follow her, the author, she's very colorful. Like She dresses in really colorful ways. And the store kind of has that vibe. There's lots of color in it. I actually bought a lovely lavender purple hat that says books on the front and then in the back are magic. So that was my takeaway from the store. Yeah, so cool. Yeah, really nice vibe. And they're opening in three weeks. They're opening a second store, not I think it's like a mile away still in Brooklyn. So we'll have to go back and see that one. Yeah, for sure. And then we went to a Brooklyn library, right? Carroll Gardens Park. Yeah, we literally put our feet up there and sat down and hung out for a couple hours, I think. Yeah, we did. The three of us just kind of chatted and we had our masks on the whole time, but it was quite lovely in there. It's a Carnegie library that was built in 1906 but it has wonderful big windows to let in a lot of light and yeah. just such a pleasant place to hang out. Yeah, very comfortable, lots of nice old wood. And we did learn from Ellen that Brooklyn library cards are different than the Manhattan City library cards. Yeah, know. different system. Yeah, yeah, I didn't realize that either. Yeah. And then we went out to eat at La Vera, which was sublime. So delicious. So good. We did all walking all day and actually it was supposed to rain and it did not rain until the very end of the day. So we got very lucky. We had our raincoats, but didn't need to use them most of the day. So we were looking for a restaurant that was between the library and our last stop. And I did a little research and found this one and it's Spanish influence with Jewish and Moorish spices. And it was really good. And woman owned and operated. Yeah. Oh my God, it's so delicious. I had this cod in some kind of avocado sauce with the pole sauce, which I had never heard of, which is a fish-based sauce. The The waiter explained to us what it was and how it was made. And oh my gosh, really so good. delicious. We got a bunch of small plates and we shared everything. Yeah, super yummy. And yeah. Ellen's partner, Chris, joined us. So that yes. was nice. He was there. Oh, and for lunch, we did stop and we had bagels. Oh, that's right. Right near, right across the street from Books Are Magic. Thank you. We had um, Smith Street bagels. They were yummy. Very yummy. Yeah. So we also sat outside and enjoyed that. And we posted pictures of that on social media. And I wish I had put a question, you know, tell us your favorite bagel combinations. Because Mm -hmm. the three of us, all of our bagel choices were different in our schmears were different so right. it's always interesting to see that yeah I got, a, I got an everything bagel with lox and cream cheese and i didn't ask for capers i usually get capers but i don't know for some reason i was maybe just overwhelmed yes. by all the choices or something there was a lot to be overwhelmed by right yeah. so that was our lunch and then la vera was our dinner yes and then we walked up the street to saint anne and the holy trinity church to see maggie o'farrell talk about her new book, The Marriage Portrait, which is about Lucretia de' Medici. Such a fascinating conversation. Now, I haven't read anything by her. I've read Hamnet, which I adored. When I saw she was coming, I really wanted to see her speak because I'm fascinated by her. There's a lot of other books to read by Maggie O'Farrell, but Hamnet's the only one I have. Okay. I love some of the stories that she shared. One of the things is that she'll start two novels kind of at the same time on different desks. So she'll work on that novel for a little bit until she's tired or hit a wall or something. And then she'll go to the other desk and work on that novel. 
and kind of go back and forth. I think that was in response to somebody who asked her about rider's block mm-hmm. and how she deals with it. And I think she kind of said she doesn't really have it, experience it because of that, you know, because she has multiple things going. And then she also said the novel that she ends up writing to the finish line usually chooses her. And that's what happened with this one, that she was waiting to pick up her kid at ballet class or some class, and she was sitting outside and scrolling through her phone and came across a portrait of Lucretia. And there was something in her eyes that just really spoke to Maggie and got her going down the Google, as she said it, the Google rabbit hole on her very old decrepit phone (laughs) where the (laughs) images wouldn't load all the way. (laughs) Yeah, and so she was only 16 when she died and not very well known as opposed to the other Medicis in the family. And when she went to visit her gravesite where she's buried, the nuns were a little confused because they're like, well, who do you want to see? Maggie showed up with flowers and everything, and the nuns eventually talked and they came back and they were like, who? And she said, you know, Lucretia. And the, one of the nuns said, no one has ever asked to see her grave. And Maggie said she just burst into tears on hearing that. Right. Yeah, she said it was a super rainy, humid day and her hair was, as she said, mental. And she, she, you know, went down to lay these flowers and she was sobbing and that people were looking at her like they didn't understand why she was getting so upset. What happened is she had actually written a lot of the book before she could go to Italy and do more research because of the pandemic. And so at this point, she knew a lot about Lucretia and had strong feelings for her. So when she got to the grave, she got very emotional, which was super sweet to hear her talk about. That was a great story that she shared. So the marriage plot is just out. It just was released, available now. I plan to get a copy. I didn't get a copy that day because it was a big, heavy, hardcover, but I am going to get a copy and read it. Yeah. Very interesting woman, very smart. And this building we were in was beautiful. Yeah. So this was a Gothic revival cathedral that was, it, it opened in 1847. And it was being worked on, and it needs work. Yeah. You know, you could see some stress factors. So they are working on it. But yeah, huge, beautiful cathedral. Yeah. Episcopalian? I don't know. I yeah. Yeah, it was a little hard to find the entrance because there was scaffolding all around, but we did. And then when we left, that's when the rain finally yeah. came. But we only had a short walk to the subway. We got back to Grand Central Station, grabbed some treats at Magnolia Bakery, which was still open at 9 o'clock at night, which is impressive. Yeah. And hop the train home. It was a great, long, fun day. It really was. We started at 8 and yeah. we got home at 11 30 at night. Yeah. yeah. But I wasn't tired. I think we've had shorter days in the city that felt more exhausting when you get on the train and you're just like, oh. Yeah. Well, Manhattan and Brooklyn feel very different. Mm-hmm. The pace of them is very different. Yeah. And we did have that couple hours sit down. Yeah. In the middle of everything. True. Yeah. And you also had coffee on the way home. So I did. I got a key lime <laughs> pie in a coffee. Oh my gosh, it was delicious. The food on that day, everything was fantastic. Yeah. We ate some good food. Yeah. We did well. Right. Yeah. So, upcoming jaunts. On November 3rd at 5 30, I'm going to go to Savoy and hear James Hanaham speak about his new book. Didn't nobody give a shit what happened to Carlotta? He is the author of Delicious Foods, which is a book I read for my book club that is narrated by cocaine. 
never read a book like it in my life. Yeah. May never read one like it again. <laughs> that sounds intense. I'm really looking forward to seeing him. And the Savoy Bookstore and Cafe is in Westerly, Rhode Island, and they are one of our affiliates. If you'd like to order the book from them, that would be super cool. Yes. And there will be a link in the show notes. And then I'm also hoping to go back to Brooklyn. November 5th and 6th, Cherry Bomb is hosting Cooks and Books, which is a weekend-long extravaganza of cookbook authors being interviewed. And it'll be at the Ace Hotel in Brooklyn. You can get an all-access pass or you can buy tickets to individual events. And I will put all of that in the show notes. That sounds so much fun. I don't really have a jaunt coming up. I'm going to be going to Chicago, see my mom, and I'm sure I'm going to do something bookish there. And then we have a fantastic joint jaunt coming up next week that you'll hear about in episode 160-something. We don't yes, know we yet. we don't know. Um, Probably but, in December. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're going to be going to the Mount, Edith Wharton's home up in Massachusetts, which is where we went for our first out-of-state biblio adventure back seven years ago when we were new friends it was probably the first couple events that we had gone to, but we decided, hey, let's do something like a whole day. And we went out and we had some great pizza in town when we arrived and did a quick tour of the Mount because they were closing. And we were also there for an evening event of storytelling. Right. Speak up storytelling with Matthew Dix. Yes. And several Booktopians were there. So that was part of the draw of going. And this was before we were the Book Cougars and right. before we even used the term Biblio Adventure. Right. So yeah, it was October 17th. So we decided we're going to go and have a little return visit there. We have more time for a tour yeah. to see the, the house more fully. We were mainly, I think, in Edith's bedroom when we were there, hearing about how she wrote in bed <laughs> in the mornings. <laughs> And then we really explored her gardens and everything. It should be a lovely drive up there. Yeah, and this is going to be how we celebrate the anniversary of the Cougs. We will put that in the episode closer to our anniversary, which is in December. Yeah, and we're probably going to read a couple of Edith's short stories. We were thinking maybe of reading her ghost stories. I have a book called Wharton's New England, Seven Stories and Ethan Frome. It was edited by Barbara White. So the ghost stories here are The Triumph of Night, Bewitched, and All Souls. So we might read one of those or all three of them, but we thought it'd be fun to read a short story in common. Yeah, so we will post that on social media and talk about it in the future. Upcoming reads. I have a like a teetering stack by me. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> Should I just prattle them off? Please. The Foundling by Anne Leary. She wrote The Good House, I think, was her debut, and that's being made into a movie by Sigourney Weaver. I've always wanted to read that one. I haven't gotten to it. Now her next book, The Foundling, came out, so I'm going to try to read it. And then The Mid Coast by Adam White, which is takes place in Maine, and I've heard raves about that book. His Only Wife by Peace Adzo Medi. This was her debut novel. It got rave reviews when it came out. Her sophomore novel's coming out, and I still want to read this, so I'm going to try to get to it. Fatty Fatty Boom Boom <laughs> is a memoir that I'm really excited about by Rabia Chaudhry. This comes out November 8th, and it's all about being... Pakistani. It's about Pakistani food, being fat, and 
Living Life and the title. I mean, come on. Right. That's awesome. And then Slow Cooked and Unexpected Life in Food Politics by Marion Nessel. This is nonfiction. This is also a memoir that Marion wrote. She's been very involved in the world of food. But this is a memoir about how that came to be. And then last but not least, Inciting Joy by Ross Gay. This publishes the day this episode airs, October 25th. He wrote The Book of Delights, which was a book of essays all about just being aware of everyday joys. And this is his next book of essays, Inciting Joy. Beautiful cover, beautiful name, beautiful writing. I just saw that book somewhere hmm. online. Somebody talking about it. Very yeah. Cool. Yeah. What about you? Well, I have these books that I purchased when we were in Brooklyn. And then Aunt Ellen, Aunt Ellen, I always said auntie or tanta when I was a kid. So I never know whether to say aunt or aunt. And I always say aunt and yeah. I think people think it's weird. No, so. I don't think so. I just feel like, <laughs> should I call her Aunt Ellen? Because you call, I mean, I Why don't Ellen. you call her Tanta Ellen? Tanta Ellen. She would love that. <laughs> So she gave me two books that she got from Linda in California. They are both by um, Simone Buchholz, who's a German writer of mysteries. And so it's Hotel Cartagena and then Blue Night. I'm looking forward to these because there's not a ton of German crime fiction that's been translated into English. So thank you so much, Ellen and Linda. I look forward to digging into those. And then I'm going to be rereading Carmilla by Joseph Sheridan Lefanu. And this is something I've read it before. I listened to the audio version. That was such a great audio version. It's one of those audible originals with multiple characters in it. That was so gripping when I read it on a dark drive home on a two-lane highway lined with forest on either side. And then the fog rolled in at one point. I shit you not. <laughs> It was such a great listening experience. But I'm going to be revisiting this story because the History Project is going to be having a book discussion of it on October 27th at 7 p.m. And I thought, you know, I'm going to make time for that as a fun thing to do. This is a story that preceded Dracula, and I love vampire stuff, as you know. Right. So, yeah, Carmilla. Very cool. We call that an atmospheric drive. Wow. I kept I trying mean, to, you know, Jim was a little bummed out that it was so rainy on our vacation. I just kept saying, it's just atmospheric. <laughs> <laughs> I love weather. I always have. Yeah. So. Same. In the out now category, Signal Fires by Danny Shapiro is out now. Um, she is known a lot for her memoir. She has written novels in the past, but not for something like 15 years. So this is her novel signal fires out now. Coming up next, we have a great conversation with Kelsey Ervek about her book, The Keeper. It's a graphic memoir. She did all the art. It's beautiful. It's such a great story about her experience as a young woman playing soccer, and what that meant for her. I don't want to give too many spoilers, but leaving soccer and coming back to it in Title IX and what that did for her. We talk about that during the interview as well. It's such a great graphic memoir. It's so colorful. And knowing that she wrote the story and she did the art and it's her story, it's just fantastic. 
It's really good. It was a good conversation. She's a really interesting woman. She and Chris talked a lot about the book, The Artist's Way, because Kelsey refers to that book in the memoir. So we just wanted to tell you what that book is, because I don't think that we did tell you in the conversation, and we didn't want it to feel too inside baseball. So can you just tell listeners what that book is? Yes. So The Artist's Way is this workbook that was written by Julia Cameron. It came out in the 90s, and it was so huge, so popular, all about exploring your creativity. I was part of a group that met and did it, who go through the chapters and all these exercises, because each chapter is full of exercises that you could do. And I think one of the things that came up with Kelsey was morning pages, which is a big thing that uh, Cameron did as her own practice and that a lot of people do, which the first thing you do in the morning is just write three pages of longhand just to get crap out of your head. Whatever's on your mind, whatever, it just stream of consciousness, let it out, burn it then, keep it, whatever you want to do with it. But it's not writing to write something to someone or for someone. It's just getting blah, getting it out. And then an artist date is another thing that we, I think, talked about. And that is one day a week or one day a month, you know, taking yourself on a date to fill your well as an artist, as a creative person. And we are all creative people. Even if you don't think you're creative, you are. And I don't mean to be disrespectful and to tell you your life, but I do think (laughs) all humans are creative. I don't think that was disrespectful. I think that was encouraging. Okay, cool. I mean, I think there's different interpretations, like going on a biblio adventure to me is filling Mm -hmm. my creative well. Absolutely. Yeah, so it was really influential. And it's still going strong. I know there were a lot of like, there was the artist way at work and a lot of different variations on a theme, but it's one of those books that everybody of a certain age, probably if they didn't work the book themselves, they knew somebody who did. So enjoy this conversation with Kelsey. Happy Happy reading. reading. We are pumped to be here today to talk with jock author and professor Kelsey Irvick. Kelsey earned her PhD from the University of Cincinnati and is currently a professor of English and Creative Writing at Indiana University, South Bend. Kelsey spent much of her childhood and young adulthood as a soccer goalie. She played on a nationally ranked girls team and also in college, where she was an English major. After hanging up her cleats and becoming a mom, Kelsey put more focus on her writing and also started drawing. She has written three award-winning books, including Lillian's Balcony, which received a starred review from Publishers Weekly, and her essays and short stories have appeared in places like The Rumpus, The Believer, and Lit Hub. We're here today to talk with Kelsey about her new graphic memoir, The Keeper, Soccer, Me, and the Law That Changed Women's Lives, which just came out last week from Avery, a nonfiction imprint of Penguin Random House. We're so glad to have you here today. The title of your graphic memoir, which we should say we're excited, we've never talked to an author about a graphic memoir. So there's so much to talk about. The title refers to Title IX, which we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of Title IX, which is pretty amazing. And I recently listened to a great interview with Billie Jean King. And she was around when Title IX was coming to be. And in this interview, she said that it's a 37 word amendment, which I didn't know. So of course, I had to look it up. So I thought I'd quickly regale us with what it says. No person in the United States shall on the basis of sex, 
be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. And she told the story about how Senator Birch Bay told her, you know, we put this word activity in and we were going to actually throw it out. Why did we put that in? And then we thought, well, maybe we forgot about something. Had that word not been left in, it wouldn't have changed the world of women's sports. Can you talk about how this impacted your life? Yes, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me here today. Yeah, that is a really notable element of it. Title IX was initially created to address sex discrimination in higher education, where women were constantly turned down from programs, turned away from colleges. So Birch Bay's wife, in fact, was turned away from the University of Virginia because she was a woman. Bernice Sandler, who was one of the really major figures in getting Title IX passed, had been told by a male colleague after she got her doctorate that the reason she wasn't being considered for jobs was because she came on too strong for a woman. She says she went home and cried. She said, little did I know those words would lead to Title IX and to changing the lives of so many women. So it was initially created to address that. But yes, they put in this word activities. Athletics, of course, is where primarily men and women are segregated, where there's men's sports, boys' sports. And so it became this, it was like, oh, this is going to be a huge area. So they started looking into what would it mean for women's sports to be equal to men's sports. They created a whole laundry list of things from scholarships to facilities and equipment and all of these things. And of course, you know, the men went crazy. <laughs> like, no, you cannot have what we have. Yes. But that word activities really was the portal in to open it up just beyond just getting into schools and graduate programs and that sort of thing. Isn't that fascinating? You know, I'm a former English teacher myself, and I think that word activities in a student's essay, you might say, expand on this, be more specific. Activities is so vague. But here's an example of when you're vague it can cover so many things that you didn't even anticipate. Yes, exactly. They began immediately having to try to interpret what does it mean and making a really good case that it meant girls sports for one. That's awesome. So how did that impact your life? Oh, right. You asked that to begin with. So that impacted my life in that Title IX was passed in 1972. I was born in 1971. And so I basically came of age with Title IX. Now, I didn't know it. I was not aware of what was going on with Title IX. I thought the reason I was doing so many sports as a kid was because my dad had been an athlete, including a college athlete, and he knew all of these sports, and he took me out in the backyard and played all sorts of sports with me and taught me how to play sports. But what I didn't realize was that my dad could play all the sports with me that he wanted. If there weren't teams for me to join, then I wasn't going to have the life that I had in sports. And so I was really fortunate to be born right on the cusp as Title IX was being developed and that when I was one year old, it passed. And so by the time I became a teenager, these programs were in place. There was a high school soccer team for me to play on and basketball team. There's a college soccer team for me to play on. And those teams did not exist 
six years before I got there. And the reason they exist is because of Title IX, because schools were finally beginning to get into compliance with the laws as the government was beginning to interpret them and saying that schools had to create programs for girls. There had to be sports teams. And so, you know, when I was born in 1971, there were less than 300,000 girls playing in high school sports. And by just a couple of years ago, it got up to 3,400,000. You know, I mean, the growth has just been exponential and it's basically all because of Title IX. It's amazing. Yeah, it sure is. And I really appreciate your memoir as a whole addressing that, but then also talking about the very personal aspects of your position as a goalie and how you were part of a team, but also kind of removed and an observer. Can you talk a little bit about how that position on a team really impacted your life as well? Yeah, when I first started playing soccer, I was a forward, a goal scorer. I was on the left wing because I could use my left foot a little bit better than some other kids. And I was big, and I could kick it pretty hard. But by the time I got into sixth grade, I, I was five foot eight, so I was pretty tall for a 12 year old and uh, not as fast and not as good with my feet, but I was good with my hands. And they basically, I, I tried out for this select team. We'd like you to be our goalkeeper, which I'd never played before. And I was, well, okay, sounds kind of fun. Sounds kind of interesting. And it is, but it's such a unique position. It's different from every position that everyone else plays. You're wearing different clothing. It's also like long-sleeved and padded. And we played a lot of hot Cincinnati games and we traveled around and played a lot of games. So I was often kind of miserable. I'm wearing gloves in addition to all that. And then you're just, you're set apart from the team physically. You're back in the goal while the rest of the game is going on. You know, it gives you a lot of time to think and make up stories. And so I I really did start to think like later in life, like, wow, my life as a writer really did begin on the soccer field back in the goal where I was watching, I was observing, and I was just kind of like lost in my own thoughts a lot. So I don't know, it felt in a way like it very much fit my personality, even though sometimes when you're a teenager, you're like, but I want to be part of everything. I don't know. But it was also just a lot like being a writer. I've often thought of, and I talk about this in the book, that my life in sports was so different on such a different path from my life as a writer. And I think Part of what I was trying to figure out in this book was like to reconcile, like, well, how did those connect? And that's a big piece of it, like being a goalkeeper and being a writer and then finding, of course, other writers who were goalkeepers, like one of my literary heroes, Vladimir Nabokov. So it was fun to explore that, too. Yeah, I really enjoyed those parts of the graphic memoir where you're bringing in the literary connections. That was a lot of fun to read about. Yeah, and I think you're being very humble, too, because you get to have a lot of time to yourself when you're a goalie when you're on a really good team. (laughs) (laughs) And you were on one of the top teams in the country. So if you're not on a good team, or you're just playing a team as an old coach, I used to know would say, sometimes you just play a team that's better than you, then your job as a goalie is a lot harder. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I and I do reflect a little bit on that in the book that like, yeah, I was on a really good team. And so that's what makes it a little bit quieter back in the goals sometimes. And I think in a way that was part of why I enjoyed playing in college so much. I talk in the book about how I got a little bit burned out with things. And I also just didn't see a path forward to, I didn't think I was going to play soccer in college. And so I quit my senior year and, and didn't play. I mean, there are a few other factors that went into that, 
But then to have this sort of second chance and have a coach who I had played against in high school who got this job coaching at Xavier University, for him to call me and say, I want you to be my goalkeeper. And I was like, well, I haven't been a goalkeeper in a minute. And um, but I was like, I'm going to do it. And also, you know, my best friend at the time, she was also being recruited by him, who I would played in high school with and on my travel team with. So I did it. And those years were just some of my happiest years of goalkeeping. It was really fun. I was so glad it hadn't been the end of my goalkeeping career. And there was just a little more action in the goal. We'll say that. <laughs> <In those years. laughs> well, we picked up on a term that you use in your memoir. We have a segment on the podcast called Biblio Adventures where we go and go to libraries, go to bookstores, things like that. And you use the term bibliotherapy. Yes. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So I'm actually quoting Bernice Sandler when she writes about all of the work she did to make Title IX happen. She writes how after her colleague had told her she comes on too strong for a woman that she went home and cried. But then she said, she's also, of course, an academic, so... She said that also when things go wrong in her life, she turns to bibliotherapy. And that was a word that just totally resonated with me, this idea that you would go to books for healing and for knowledge and for growth. So I, I just loved that and, and loved thinking that not only did Title IX start with a woman's tears, because I can be a little bit of a crier myself, but that it began with a woman reading and reading her way into the solutions. And it helped her to find a presidential executive order. And then she read the footnote and she realized she could take this sex discrimination case to court. And then it would lead to the writing of Title IX. So definitely as an English major, an English PhD, and now English professor, I love bibliotherapy. <laughs> I, really, I related to that a lot, too. <laughs> That's awesome. I got shivers when you were just talking about that, saying that she read her way into a solution. Yes. So powerful. Yes, yeah. yes. I'd like to jump ahead a little bit to when you started focusing more on your writing, and you talk about doing uh, The Artist Way by Julia Cameron, which, you know, I'm of that ilk as well. <laughs> and um, I'm wondering if you could talk about your experience with that book. And I have to ask, did you actually finish the whole book and do all of the exercises? <laughs> Not to put you I, on the spot or anything, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you saw what happened in the midst of them, how I got a little bit interrupted by some life events. But yeah, so I got The Artist's Way in 1996, and I still have my dated copy. Uh, I mean, like I literally wrote the date in. I did do The Artist's Way all the way through. I was doing the morning pages, and I was doing the artist dates, the weekly artist date, just, just taking myself to a museum or sometimes, admittedly, it was a bookstore. You know, just something else like on my own to kind of nurture my artistic self. I did do a number of the questions at the end, you know, like writing or thinking about, she gives some great questions at the end of each chapter. And I've returned to it over the years, both the practice of the morning pages, which if people don't know, it's where you write three pages, long hand stream of consciousness, just dump your brain on paper so that you can like move on with your day. So yeah, I've done that off and on over the years. And actually when I was working on, on writing the keeper and drawing the keeper, 
I returned to it then. And I think in a way that's probably why it was like so fresh for me to be talking about because I felt the need to do it again recently. And so I had my old 1996 copy and started going through those chapters and, and reflecting on like how things had changed. But I also really wanted to, you know, it's scary to write a book and like, you don't always know where you're going with it and whatever. But I learned through that book and just through years now of writing to trust in the process. And part of my process was those morning pages where if I was stuck on a section, I would write about it in those morning pages and try to figure it out just through the writing. So we were talking about biblio therapy earlier, maybe there's something like scriptio therapy, <laughs> something with writing, you know, writing your way into uh, and through a problem. But to go back to, to 1996, that was a big shift for me because my competitive athletic career was over. I, I still played, I joined like a co-ed flag football league that I really enjoyed playing and um, occasionally would play recreational soccer or something. But my competitive sports career was over. And I knew I'd always been interested in writing and books and art, but I really didn't know how to be an artist or writer. And I didn't even know exactly what it meant. I had those ideas that I think sometimes we all have that are very romanticized and or are based in people who are long dead, you know, just ideas about what it means. And so just doing that daily practice and going through the artist's way helped me just reframe my thinking and understand that it is really just a daily practice and sort of way of being and doing and um, that my reading life was part of that artist life and that all I had to do was start doing it, start writing stories, start making paintings and drawings. And even if it didn't feel like I was like officially like a great artist in that moment, I was still doing it. You know, it's a way, as she says, it's not a final product it's a way of being. Yeah. So in the drawings in this are beautiful. And as I was reading it, I thought, wow, I mean, the story is enough, you know, and, the, and then you throw in so much history, which came first? I mean, did you write the story and then draw? Would you go back and forth? How did that work? You know, I've been writing versions of this story for a while now, I realized. And so I'd written an essay called The New Soccer Mom, where I was reflecting on being a soccer mom to my daughter and how different it was that her soccer mom was a former Division I soccer player and my fellow coach was a former Division I soccer player and also a mom. And I was reflecting on the differences between her generation and my generation and my mom as a soccer mom and that sort of thing. I'd written an essay that was like 12 years ago. I wrote that essay. I've been thinking about these things for a long time. I've written other essays about sexism in literature and how how I I myself had to not only experience sexism in literature but I think carried some I you know I I think I preferred male writers in different ways that I I didn't fully understand that really I was just steeped in the patriarchy and um, expected to think these things but so I'd I'd written about some of that journey of my love and appreciation for women writers. And so a lot of these things I was able to draw on, you know, I had some of that content out there and then I was reformatting it into this 
visual narrative, just snippets of those essays kind of gave me points along the way, guideposts, whatever. And then I would write to and around them. I've called myself a writer who started drawing. So I think, you know, writing is kind of my default mode. And so I did start not just with essays I'd written, but I did do a lot of my generative work with writing. But the more I got into into the creation of the book, the more it really had to be happening at the same time. And that's why it was really helpful to me. I was working, um, I have some watercolors or gouache paintings in there that, you know, are, are scanned in. But for the most part, I was working with Procreate, which is a digital drawing program on my iPad, which allowed me to do some really rough sketches and, and lettering kind of start imagining a mapped out page or a, or a full spread and what that would look like. And so I really had, I, I had to be starting to think just as I was getting deeper and deeper into image and text at the same time. Oh, that's so cool. Thank you for talking about like ProQuest because I was going to ask you what you use to draw and, you know, what materials and, and all that. So thank you for mentioning that. I can say a little bit more, but first, I think your um, researcher self is coming in because you just called it ProQuest. Oh. And it's, <laughs> which, right, isn't that like a search tool for academic um, I think articles? You're, yes, I think so. Yeah, I, 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 I yeah. don't even, I'm not even conscious about that. That's funny. <laughs> so yeah, so it's Procreate Pro is, is what it's called. And um, yeah, so I'll use my Apple Pencil and my iPad and, and work in that way. But like I said, I also have some other collage elements or other paintings that I did, but for the most part, it was done on the iPad with Procreate. That's awesome. <laughs> and how long did it take about from, you know, kind of saying this is going to be a book to, to finishing? It was an accelerated process because we wanted to get the book out in time for 2022 and the 50th anniversary of Title IX. It didn't come out on the actual 50th anniversary, which is in June, but we were trying to get it out. And so I've been working on versions of this and starting to do the image text. It's, it's a 336 page book. I had about a hundred pages close to ready when I submitted my proposal. And the proposal included those hundred pages plus a summary of what I expected it to be, you know, the different sections and things changed from that proposal as, as I worked my way into the material, but I had essentially a little over a year to finish it. And once the proposal and the first hundred pages were accepted, not the first hundred pages, but those hundred pages, it just meant it's basically all I did for a year. It's the kind of thing. And I, I it's a weird, I don't know if this metaphor is actually apt, but I think about it like an accordion where you're going to spend 10 zillion hours doing this project, but I just happen to do all of those 10 zillion hours in one year instead of like spreading it out <laughs> over like three or five years, which, you know, might've been more leisurely. Um, but I don't know. It allowed me to like keep really tight with the story itself and to always kind of like have all the different parts in my head. Um, which, you know, sometimes when you're working on a book over years and you get away from it for three months or six months, you're like, what have I been writing? And <laughs> yeah. you know, what are the different sections? So it was a pretty intense time. <laughs> I have a question. Um, we, we have younger listeners. Um, we are, you know, middle-aged here, but we, as I said, we have younger listeners. And I think some folks who listen with the younger people in their lives. And one of the points in the book, I think it was when you're doing The Artist's Way, and there was a question like, what gets in the way of creativity? 
And mm-hmm. I think you said soccer or sports. I don't really remember. So that dichotomy yeah. that you have to choose sports or choose writing yeah. or a creative outlet like painting or drawing. What yeah. advice would you give to younger people or you know even older folks who are starting to explore their creative selves or their physical selves? What advice would you give to people when they're kind of facing that dichotomy? Yeah, I really appreciate that question because to me it seems so obvious now that you can do all of the things, but at the time it was tough. I totally identified as an athlete. I was a jock, you know, that that's how I spent my time after school. And because I was always at some sort of sports practice, I didn't have time to go explore some of these other things that I, I was interested in. I would have loved to have taken a photography class in high school, but like it didn't, you know, fit with my classes. And I don't know, I can't really blame like soccer practice for it, but it just felt like there were just things that like, I would have liked to have done it, but for whatever reason, you know, I had to take Spanish four instead or something. I don't know. I just, I thought of myself as a jock, even though I was interested in being an artist and a lot of, of course, high school stuff reinforces that. I think, you know, you just get kind of lumped in there, all the different groups in high schools. I think and hope this is changing a bit, but honestly, I saw my daughter experience some of the same things. She was on her high school volleyball team, but then she was also in musical theater And the musical theater kids are like, what do you mean you're on the volleyball team? And the volleyball team was like, what do you mean you're doing musical theater? And they just kind of didn't even understand these two different worlds. So speaking to my daughter, to your younger listeners, I mean, I just, yes, do all of the things. We are human beings. We are multifaceted. You know, we have bodies that need to go out and exercise and play and be healthy and and we have creative sides that need to also be nurtured and not told that you can't that you're not creative because you're a sports kid and that you can't do sports because you're a creative kid. I mean, I you know, I teach a lot of English majors who are like, yeah, I'm not a sports person. I never was a sports person. And um, but there's different ways to be athletic. And that that I think is another lesson of the artist's way that I was reflecting on a lot in making the book is how she talks about how much art is created through the body. And so much about art is about creating feelings in readers and how connected to the body it is. And so I was realizing like, as I was writing, that's the part where I'm writing about how I started to see like, oh my gosh, my whole sports life and the the discipline that I learned to have and the the focus and the willingness to kind of keep trying things, you know, even when I'm failing or even when I'm not very good at it, I was totally able to apply to my artist's life later and to being a writer and all of the losses, all of the disappointments in sports prepared me to be rejected as a writer <laughs> and to, you know, for things not to go as, exactly as I'd planned. And I don't know. I just see them as like, I just really passionately want people to be able to embrace all of their human sides and selves. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah. And I think sometimes it does depend on the peer group that your kids choose and you know, yeah. what the clicks, I hate that word, but what that is like <laughs> in the schools or whether they're small schools or big schools. My kids went yeah. to small, a very, very small school. And so it was like, we'll take you anywhere we can get you because <laughs> oh, we don't good, have enough actually. kids to put a play on, you know? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right that it's really important to be well-rounded and to mm-hmm. try to be in touch with all those sides of yourself. And this memoir definitely speaks to that. It's also a fantastic history lesson. 
about soccer. We never even got a chance That's to touch fun. on that. <laughs> um, we probably should go. We've taken so much of your time. I mean, I want what I think people should know is that by reading this, you're providing lovely bibliotherapy. <laughs> I learned so much and it took me right back to being both on the sidelines as a fan of soccer and as a soccer mom. Mm. You really cover so much territory with it and you're really vulnerable in it, which is you know a helpful way for people to learn. So thank you for being willing to do that. Well, thank you. I love that you just called it a form of bibliotherapy. I, I love to think of it like that. <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, come chat with us on social media. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, we would love to have you join our community. All of the books that we talked about in this episode are listed in the show notes, which you can find at bookcougars.com. Each book will link to our bookshop.org page where your purchase will help support not only the book cougars, but also independent bookstores everywhere. And if you're an audiobook listener, we do have a special offer from Libro.fm. You can find all of this information on our website. Again, that's bookcougars.com. Thanks, everybody. This episode is edited by Pat Keo Sound Design.